foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Marcy Winograd of Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Welcome to our Code Pink Radio Show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations. You can also hear us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And do check out our website at www.codepink.org, where you'll find the latest on our campaigns and all of our radio episodes and podcasts. As Code Pink kicked off Earth Day, our Code Pink Congress team hosted a War is Not Green wing campaign, pointing out that the Pentagon is the single largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases and that oil is the leading cause of interstate war. If we want to thwart the climate crisis, we must address the elephant in the room, the Pentagon. Our War is Not Green campaigners, Teddy Ogborn and Jody Evans, hosted a teach-in on the environmental impacts of U.S. militarism, with a special focus on shareholder activism to hold BlackRock, one of the world's largest investment firms, accountable for worsening the climate crisis and perpetuating the war economy. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin updated us on the war in Ukraine and its impact on the environment, while we featured global voices on environmental challenges rooted in escalating U.S. militarism. Our featured guests were Keone DeFranco, a Hawaiian sovereignty organizer, water protector, and native Hawaiian. Also, Stephen Donziger, a U.S. attorney known for his legal battles with Chevron. We also featured Julian Aguan, an indigenous human rights lawyer and writer from Guam. Now let's go to our Code Pink Congress program that begins with a news update from Code Pink co-founder, Medea Benjamin. Um, I want to give an update on the leaked Pentagon documents that came out last week. And uh, there's about 300 documents that have been put online in the form of photos. Uh, They mostly came from February and March. I'm just going to talk about the ones that relate to Ukraine uh, and give you some brief Uh, updates. One is that it talks about the stalemate on the ground, uh, the uh, deficiencies in the Russian forces. Of course, they've been unable to even take um, the bombed out city of Bakhmut after months and months of fighting. But it also predicts that the spring offensive that's supposed to happen from the Ukrainian side, it looks like there are already deficiencies in equipment and troops And they say the most likely outcome will be modest territorial gain. Uh, There is a document that says the war is locked in a grinding campaign of attrition and was likely heading towards a stalemate. The other, another aspect is uh, all the spying that the U.S. is doing. And of course, 
Uh, this happens on a regular basis, but the U.S. gets very embarrassed when this information gets leaked, and it shows that they are spying on our allies, including Zelensky himself, spying on the uh, UN Attorney uh, Secretary General, spying on our allies in South Korea as they try to get around their own laws that prohibit them from sending weapons to a conflict area, i.e. Ukraine, uh, by sending them to Poland first. And then lastly, I wanted to mention uh, that the documents talk about special forces from NATO countries that uh, the NATO countries had not admitted they're there. Uh, that includes about 50 uh, special forces from the UK, a handful of special forces from the US, France, and other countries. And one of the Republican Congress people, Matt Getz, is at, introducing a what's called a privilege resolution of inquiry that will force Biden uh, to notify Congress exactly the number of U.S. military that are in Ukraine. So that's some of the updates on the leaked documents. Thank you for that, Medea. Uh, Brian Garvey is with us from Massachusetts Peace Action. Brian, what's happening? Well, I'd like to give a brief update on this uh, new campaign, and it's directly related to what Medea was just talking about, calling for a negotiated end to this war, calling for negotiations for more diplomacy and for a ceasefire. Uh, if what we're looking at is a war of attrition, a stalemate, you know, those go on for years and years. Um, so the best way to end it is at the negotiating table. And to do so, the Peace in Ukraine Coalition has struck upon a, a very interesting idea. And that is to just put this front uh, uh, on the front page uh, by buying a, a big ad uh, in a newspaper, uh, posting a letter to Presidents Biden, Putin, and Zelensky, uh, calling for a negotiated uh, end to this war. Because I think there's a lot of people in this country who are thinking about this, but there's so much media propaganda in support to continuing this war um, that by seeing it on a full page ad in a major newspaper could really wake the people up that, you know, other people might be thinking like you, that there's uh, it's time really to end this war. Um, so, so far, uh, I think there's, there's about 5,000 signatures on this. I believe it's over, about 50 Something groups that, that have endorsed it. Um, yeah. And uh, if you could put the, if someone could put the link in the chat, um, I think where this gets placed how close to the front page and on how big a newspaper is going to depend on how many donations uh, uh, we get for the campaign. So right. um, if you have a few bucks, please uh, throw them code pink's way. Uh, I think yeah, this absolutely. is a great initiative. Yeah, this is an initiative. Thank you, Brian. Uh, that as, as Brian mentioned, the uh, Peace in Ukraine coalition launched. We hope to get this petition uh, and uh, we hope to get this petition published in an ad, which would cost about $10,000 for a newspaper that's widely read on Capitol Hill. We've so far raised about 7,500. So help us, you know, reach the finish line, please. So next, I want to bring to you my dear friend, Juliana Guan, who's a Chamorro human rights lawyer and author from Guam. His most recent book, No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies, you must all read because it illustrates the urgency of fighting global climate injustice and his clarity of focus and radical empathy are desperately necessary for this new world we're imagining. Julian founded the law firm Blue Ocean Law at the age of 28, and he earned a Pulitzer Prize recognition for his 
2021 essay right before COP in Glasgow, um, which was in the Atlantic, and it was called To Hell with Drowning. Um, he serves on the Global Advisory Council of Progressive International, and he works at the intersection of environmental justice and indigenous rights. He's worked to prevent ocean mining, illuminate struggles of indigenous leader communities, expose threats to human rights, and most recently, an enormous win for the planet that he'll share with you. He's one of my heroes. Please welcome Julian. Thank you so much, Jody, and thank you so much for co to all of everyone at Coping for inviting me to be part of this session today. Um, <clears throat> Jody asked that I just briefly recount what happened in New York last month, and so I'll just start there, and then I'll um, share with you all what's happening in my own homeland of Guam. So on March 29th, um, a small miracle happened. We, um, my law firm, Blue Ocean Law, we have represented the Republic of Vanuatu for the past three years. Um, and we have been pursuing um, an advisory opinion on climate change and human rights from the International Court of Justice based in The Hague. Um, this is the pr principal judicial organ of the UN, um, the World Court, some say. Um, and we really wanted finally to, you know, confirm what the, the youth around the world have long known and have long sort of rallied around the cry that the climate crisis is in fact also a human rights crisis. And so we've been working for three years and last month we succeeded in um, securing a resolution that was adopted by consensus, which in and of itself is pretty shocking, only because in the entire history of the United Nations, um, the General Assembly has uh, never uh, requested an advisory opinion from the World Court on that basis, on a consensus basis, meaning we got even the naysaying states to sort of get out of the way and not actually oppose this resolution. So we are now gearing up for a sort of a worldwide set of pleadings, especially by climate vulnerable countries around the world, you know, for whom the climate crisis is really just happening here and now and just devastating. There's such a wide range of adverse impacts um, being felt across the uh, small island Pacific developing states. Um, so we are working on that. Um, that's one of the biggest projects that the firm is working on. But I also wanted to share um, a little bit of an update because I've spoken with Code Pink before. Um, and Code Pink has been a, a wonderful ally for the indigenous Timor people of Guam. But, you know, the bullet train is still on the tracks and just heading toward us. You know, the U.S., as it ramps up its, you know, potential war against China, is really aggressively militarizing my homeland of Guam and the northern Mariana Islands. We, as um, I've told Jody, we are bracing ourselves for a cataclysmic round of militarization with no parallel in modern history. I mean, just, just the other month, the U.S. Marine Corps um, had a ribbon-cutting ceremony and sort of to celebrate its brand new Marine Corps base. It's the first U.S. Marine Corps base that has been built anywhere in this country in 70 years. So like the U.S. is just dragging us backward. I mean, um, the U.S. is our colonizer. Guam remains formally slated by the U.N. as a non-self-governing territory, which is the U.N.'s way of saying modern-day colony. That means that the colonized people of Guam are officially waiting to exercise um, our right of self-determination. That includes the right to outright independence, for example. It includes the possibility of throwing off the colonial yoke for good. Um, and so this is what, in the context of that, we have a sort of rapid and really large scale militarization of the island. 
right now, um, the number is 5,000. So the USN government, together with the government of Japan, has agreed to transfer 5,000 U.S. Marines from Okinawa, which itself shoulders a disproportionate board burden of U.S. military presence. I think Okinawa house, house or place host to roughly 70% of the entire U.S. military presence in Japan is housed in Okinawa. So in part due to growing unrest um, by civil society, community-based organizations, etc., um, the U.S. government and Japan have agreed to relocate at least 5,000 of those U.S. Marines to Guam. Um, so what that means is a brand new Marine Corps base, um, dr dramatic expansion of U.S. military footprint on Guam. Um, this has translated into several things being constructed, se several military-related construction projects. Uh, for example, a five-range um, military, like live fire training range complex uh, that's up there on the northern coast of the island. Um, and to build this complex, which includes a massive machine gun range, the U.S. Uh, military has destroyed over a thousand acres of pristine limestone forests, the same forests that serve as critical habitat for several endangered endemic species, like our native eight-spot butterfly, which I write about in the book, but also serves as like the grounds, the like where our traditional plant medicine grows and our traditional medicine women, our zoomti or our traditional healers, gather the plants they need to make certain medicines. So we have been obviously opposed to this massive militarization of our homelands. Oh, let me back up and say, it's not just terrestrial expansion, it's also marine expansion. So the US military is also um, carving out a swath of the Pacific Sea, of the Pacific Ocean, that's basic, um, the last estimate was, according to the last note, it's almost the size of India. That is how big a swath of the ocean off the coast of Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands that the U.S. military is playing war games on. It's blowing up ships. It's endangering a whole wide range of our other than human relatives um, from humpback whales. And there's a, a humpback whale nursery right off of the coast of Saipan. Um, there, is, there are sort of a wide range of dolphins, sea turtles, and other species um, that were, are directly in the line of fire. Um, and we have U.S. federal agencies sort of essentially waiving the requirements of having to comply with U.S. federal environmental statutes. So the military, in effect, has a license to kill. And that, you know, it, it has at least a license to take. And to take is to harm or otherwise disturb marine mammals and the like, you know, in their natural habitat. So we are looking at tens of thousands of marine uh, species a year, tens of thousands that have been authorized to be taken. Um, you should read, if you want further reading, you should read the letter of authorization that's been issued, the incidental take permit that's been issued. This is like essentially a grant, a seven-year license to harm all of this marine life. And that's what we're up against. It's it, To be in Guam right now is to sort of be assailed at every side, you know, by the U.S. military because of colonial enterprise. And we are here and we are objecting, we have protested, there's been direct action, there's been lawsuits. We have done so many things to try to stop the spreading canopy of U.S. militarization and, you know, in some ways to and And that, I think, is an addition of a larger failing. I think the entire national anti-war movement has failed. We, we people still don't understand what Guam is, that it is the ancestral homeland for the Chamorro people. Instead, we have language the constant use and deployment of language that disappears my people.
For example, Guam being referred to as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. You know, there's all this innocuous genocidal use of language. And it all sort of runs toward the same end. And that is toward, to sort of render the people invisible, my people, and sort of like render this place open for the taking by the US military. And the US military is taking. Um, and we are all in danger for it. Um, so yes, I work on this issue. We have tried to do a number of things. You know, it's very hard to litigate certain kinds of issues um, in the U.S. federal court system, as Stephen and everyone else here probably already well knows. You know, there are a variety of sort of jurisprudential tools that function as escape valves for judges to essentially get out and sort of like just excuse all kinds of sort of absolutely abhorrent behavior that is so concretely adverse to so many forms of life, human and otherwise. Um, and those those tools have been employed in our case, Earth Justice, and we, everyone has lost their round of litigation. All litigation has sort of failed to stop this. And we clearly just need people power. You know, we need that. And we have so much more work to do. I mean, you know, the last thing I'll say is the work of solidarity is just so critical. It's clearly the only way forward. I mean, that's why I'm excited to be a part of Progressive International, to, be, to take these stands with different communities. For example, when uh, Red Hill was being contaminated in Hawaii, affecting our Native Hawaiian brothers and sisters and everyone there, it, it is horrendous what the U.S. military has been allowed to get away with in Hawaii, too. They have poisoned the water, too. In Guam, our aquifer is in direct sort of is being directly threatened by that same machine gun range I just described, which at which the US military plans to expend some 6.7 million lead bullets over our primary source of drinking water. Um, so all of these this, you know, struggles are not only connected, but we, we have to build bridges across those struggles because clearly it's the only way forward is a, a, a road that's paved with solidarity. And I mean that for Okinawa too. It's a lie when they say that they're reducing the U.S. military presence by moving some of these Marines to Guam, because in fact, the U.S. Marines has also recently announced that they're still expanding its, their U.S. military footprint in Okinawa. So we are, our fates are tied, our future is. Thank you so much. Yes, okay. I'm so happy to have Keone on. Keone DeFranco is a community organizer, a Kiaiwai water protector, and a Kanaka Maoli native Hawaiian resident of Waimanolo, Oahu. Keone was part of a delegation of Kiaiwai water protectors who traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with Hawaii's representatives to discuss accelerating the defueling and decommissioning of the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. In 2021, the Navy's facility began leaking fuel into the freshwater aquifer underneath the island of Oahu, contaminating the water for an estimated 100,000 residents. And Keone has been key in this fight. Keone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, take it away. Aloha mai, o ko'uinoa Keone, o waimanalo maiao. Aloha, and thank you all so much for being here today. My name is Keone and I'm based in Waimanalo on the island of Oahu. I'm a Kanaka Maoli Native Hawaiian and a Kia'iwai, a water protector and community organizer in the efforts to defuel, decommission and deoccupy Red Hill, which is a naval fuel storage facility built in the 1940s that has been leaking fuel directly into our water supply since its doors opened. As mentioned, uh, most recently Red Hill leaked 
over 14,000 gallons of jet fuel in May and June of November of 2021, and experienced an AFFF spill of firefighting uh, suppression liquid, which contains a forever chemical PFAS in November of 2022. Now that's three toxic spills within a year and a half. Needless to say, the Red Hill fuel facility is a threat to all life on Oahu, as it continues to store over 100 million gallons of fuel 100 feet above Oahu's sole source aquifer, which supports a population of 900,000. Another leak could completely destroy the water pipes, making Honolulu uninhabitable. We ask the question, once that occurs, where, were all, where will our people go when the Navy then finally evacuates its people? We refuse to allow this risk to continue. And while a task force has been created to defuel Red Hill, not a single gallon of fuel has left the facility to date. Congress now required, requires the Secretary of Defense to certify that the Red Hill facility is non-essential before it can be defueled via the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, a certification that has yet to happen. Uh, and so this happens 12 months after the Secretary of Defense did deem this site as 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 one that can be defueled. Now we're we're moving backwards, uh, most likely given you know the increased activity uh, within the Pacific region um, as as we gear up in in a you know um, an offensive towards China. Every moment Red Hill is not defueled, we risk irreversible damage to our aquifer, which our grandchildren will have to deal with. The U.S. military is the greatest threat to life in Hawaii and on our island of Oahu. Late stage imperialism is when jet fuel is coming at your water faucet. The logical next step is for the re immediate reduction in the footprint of the Department of Defense in Hawaii. If the military currently occupies 25% of Oahu's land, then we call for an immediate reduction of troops. If we, the people, have been asked to reduce our water usage by 10%, we call for 10% of the military troops to leave our shores immediately as we are still experiencing a water shortage directly as a result of the Navy's negligence. Now, Red Hill is not an isolated incident. So we also call for land back for the illegally occupied and stolen military and civilian lands to return to the Kanaka Maui, the people, not the state of Hawaii, as reparations for decades of pollution to our land and water sources so that we can begin to heal as a people, as Lahui. The Kanaka Maui Native Hawaiians make up only 20% of the Hawaii's population at this point, while, while making up 50% of its homeless. The presence of the military directly displaces the Kanaka and places us in poverty. We call to shut down bases across Pai'aina, Hawaii, including Makua Valley on Oahu, Ohakuloa Training Area on Hawaii Island, Pacific Military Range Facility Barking Sands on Kauai, and Maui Space Surveillance Complex, which leaked diesel fuel on the summit of Haleakala this past February. Now, all of these sites have leases that expire starting in 2029. So this is a kahea call to action in a moment in which we can actually permanently shut these sites down for good. Each one of them is going to be going through a process of an environmental impact statement. Uh, the first of these has happened for Pohakuloa. The state of Hawaii has already rejected their first draft, which means that there are opportunities for each one of these sites to actually be shut down for good. We also call for civilian oversight on the Joint Task Force Red Hill, uh, which we believe is a very simple ask. 
It took hours before our chief engineer of Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ernie Lau, to be alerted that there was a PFAS spill last November. Uh, and we, the public, have still not seen film footage of this bill, which has been withheld for us. And so this is also a call that the Navy must release this footage for transparency's sake and place community and civilian leaders such as Ernie Lau onto the Joint Task Force. It makes no sense uh, that we do not have a seat at the table. To restore our water systems, we must regain management of our lands. Aloha Aina, Aina Aloha. We love the land, the land is us. We are the land. The bones of our ancestors are Evie turned to dust. Thus, we become the land that we protect. We are genealogically connected. Ola ikavai, water is life. Ola kavai, there is life in the water itself. And so without the necessity of the water itself supporting life for Kanaka, given our genealogical connection, it is our kuleana responsibility to fight and protection of fresh water to exist within itself. Mahalo nui loa for your time. Aloha mai. Okay, Oni, that was really beautiful, and I, I feel like crying. Um, please post in the chat what you would like people to do. That's a you know highest priority, and then do email us, and we can uh, tell people in greater depth what they can do to support your efforts. Okay, uh, I think uh, there's time. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to go to questions in a minute, but first we're going to hear from some of our other guests. We will have a Q and A uh, after we hear from. Julian Ogon and Stephen Can I Dotziger. ask one question, Marcy? Just um... oh, okay, one question <laughs> because we do want to do the Q and A. I know, um, but also um, to express wow, just deepest love and the the violations that are happening, and and you know, here we are talking about Earth Day and uh, the effects of the military. And I'm just, you know, we, we watch the culture of militarism find its way into everything. What are, what are your experiences with the militarism as you work to defend, as you're a, as you're a planet defender, what, what engagements do you have with militarism? It's interesting, as I say militarism, uh, we also look at this as military tourism. Um, so we look at like Bellows Air Force Base, which is uh, the closest military base to where I live in Waimanalo. Um, this is a sizable military base uh, that at this point is marketed online as mainly a uh, rest and, and, and recreational site. And so this is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of pristine beachfront property that is withheld from our community. Um, many of which live on tents on the beach, just two minutes down, um, where the military not just has you know, training facilities, but withholds um, housing that could house our people. Um, and, and so we have you know, Pohakuloa, which is the largest military training facility within the US on Hawaii Island. Um, that is a site that 30 days before the Mauna Loa eruption, which happened last November, uh, the military, the army in particular, uh, was hosting training right at the base of Mauna Loa, dropping bombs. And so as our community is saying, this mountain looks like it is about to erupt, do not do so. 
they do that. And then, you know, 30 days later, an eruption occurs. Um, and, and so we, we do have, you know, this 20% of the state of Hawaii itself is, is, is military occupation. 25% of Oahu just in itself is also military occupation. But then you, when you begin to look at, you know, which of these lands are, are just unused and used for military tourism, um, you know, Barking Sands on Kauai is definitely one of those. Bellows Beach is another one of those. And for, so for us, Demilitarization is a phased process. Of course, we'd like the entire U.S. presence to leave our shores immediately. But for us, if we can ask for 10% here, 10% there, reduction, give us this land, give us that land, so that our people that are unhoused and homeless can move into a space that hasn't been polluted and have a roof over their head, because some of these places like Bellows is, is also archaeological sites, sites where our, our, our burials are, and places where we can immediately begin to house our people and grow our food. Food security um, is, is directly in conflict with military occupation as well. And so if we can focus on, on returning land for food and housing, that makes a big difference. And so for us, this is a phased process. And, and again, you know, reparations for us as community means return land to us immediately. If you cannot speed up the defueling of Red Hill, then give us land. You know, tell us why not. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much, Keone. to uh, somebody that a lot of us have heard of, Stephen Donziger. He's been in the news quite a bit for the last few years. People have been outside his uh, home in New York City in support of his case. And uh, Stephen is best known for his legal battles with Chevron, in which he represented over 30,000 farmers and indigenous people in Ecuador who suffered environmental damage and health problems, understatement caused by oil drilling. The Ecuadorian court awarded the plaintiffs nine and a half billion in damages, which led Chevron to withdraw its assets from Ecuador and launch legal action against Donziger in the United States. Having spent 45 days in prison and a combined total of 993 days under house arrest, Stephen Donziger was released on April 25th, 2022. He believes Chevron's, what happened to him is basically a lab experiment in disguise. He'll talk more about that and the goal of the environmental movement, how we can merge with the with the peace movement. All right, Stephen, the floor is yours. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that nice introduction to 
Jody Evans and Teddy and everyone on the call who everyone does such extraordinary work. I'm honored to be invited to share a little bit of my story and sort of what it means. So, you know, in a nutshell, I've worked for many years representing um, indigenous peoples and farmer communities in Ecuador's Amazon against Chevron. Chevron, through its predecessor company, Texaco, went into the Amazon of Ecuador in the late 60s and over about a 25-year period deliberately dumped uh, billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste into the forest, into river streams that local communities relied on for their drinking water, for their bathing, for their fishing. The result over time is many people have suffered tremendously. Many have died of cancer and other oil-related diseases. And this humanitarian catastrophe persists to this day. People are really hurting in Ecuador. Um, we filed a lawsuit, won a, a roughly $10 billion judgment in 2013. Rather than pay the judgment, Chevron then went after me personally in, in the United States, in New York, where I live. They sued me for the most money um, anyone in this country, any individual in this country has ever been sued for, $60 billion. Um, we kept going. We won a big judgment in Canada uh, from the Supreme Court in Canada to enforce the Ecuador environmental judgment against Chevron's assets in that country. And then Chevron went after me uh, through a judge here in New York who had investments in Chevron. And this judge um, charged me with criminal contempt of court for refusing to turn over my computer and confidential case file to Chevron in the middle of this civil litigation. Um, I had appealed his order, which I think is unprecedented and illegal. And while it was on appeal, he he had me locked up um, prior to trial on his contempt charges. And I ended up staying in my home for almost three years, including 45 days of that time I was in a federal prison. And this was all for a misdemeanor charge of contempt where the maximum sentence was 180 days. Um, more notable, and this is sort of the larger message, is this is, I think, part of a new fossil fuel industry playbook to target activists. Um, the federal prosecutor in New York refused to prosecute me on the judge's contempt charges. So the judge appointed a private Chevron law firm to prosecute me in the name of the United States government. I'm the only person in the history of our country, I think, who has been prosecuted directly by a corporation and detained by a corporation, which essentially took over the prosecutorial machinery of the United States government to try to silence me. So we're next Tuesday, actually a week from today is the year anniversary of my release from this period of detention. I'll point out, I still sort of live in the in the danger of them doing this all over again because the issue of my computer is unresolved. Um, Chevron has convinced the judge to confiscate my passport. I've lost my right to travel and they also disbarred me on the basis of all this without a hearing. Just so you know, the Ecuador case is still very much alive. It's been affirmed on appeal by Ecuador's highest court, the National Court of Justice. Um, the communities in Ecuador who really are the center of this battle are attempting to enforce their judgment against Chevron's assets in other countries. So that's sort of the story. Now, what are really the lessons, I think, for all of us? First of all, I think what happened to me is sort of part of a broader trend in our country of corporatization of power, 
um, corporate control of government to try to essentially increase already obscenely high profits even further and prevent a, a transition to clean energy and continue the way. He was a little too successful in their advocacy. They want to have the ability to threaten them with prison. And if the prosecutorial or the prosecutors don't go along to prosecute them directly. My case actually got all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And just a couple of weeks ago, um, I appealed this conviction. I, I ended up being tried in a non-jury trial by a judge who's a Federalist Society leader, Chevron funds the Federalist Society. The trial, in my opinion, was a farce. Um, she wouldn't let me testify in my own defense. She wouldn't let me explain why I appealed this order that I turned over my computer. In any event, um, it got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court listed and relisted my case five times in their conference where they, they determine what cases to take. And they eventually denied my appeal, essentially legalizing the idea of corporate prosecutions in the United States. But interestingly, two of the justices the conservative justices uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh dissent, really a beautiful opinion. By the way, I don't agree with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on probably 99.9% .9 of the issues they rule on, but this was amazing. And they basically stood for the principle that corporate prosecutions cannot, should not happen. They violate the constitution and they violate international law. Um, I'm shocked, frankly, that none of the so-called liberals on the court join them. It only takes four justice, justices of the nine to take an appeal. So I just needed <clears throat> two more and I couldn't get it. But I'm really proud of, you know, that we were able to take it as far as we did. And I think it really sends a message when these two conservative justices sort of see this for what it is. It's, it's, it's a step forward to some degree, but the sad reality is this playbook is now legal. Now, I don't necessarily expect it to be used. Um, I hope it's never used again, but I think we as activists need to understand that we need to see this for what it is and fight fight it so it never happens again. So with regard to the question of um, sort of the connection between the peace movement and the climate justice movement, I mean, one thing I've noticed in this journey I've been on, um, where I've had to really grow a lot and learn a lot to understand what was really happening to me. You know, it's not necessarily immediately obvious when you're charged with a crime or the judge appoints a prosecutor under a technical rule, the federal rules of criminal procedure, what's really happening. Because a lot of these tools of judicial oppression are hidden in the esoterica, the technical law. But, you know, I've been able to speak to enough people and get enough coverage from the independent media. I think people are generally aware of this. I do think it's critical that we connect dots, connect movements. You know, it's not just the peace movement and the climate justice movement that need to be closer together. It's also the labor movement, the criminal justice movement. It's really every progressive movement, isn't it? And I think that the climate movement as a whole has not been connected enough to some of these other issues that are affecting communities around our country and around the world. And, you know, one thing I've tried to do in my talks and in my advocacy is, is connect the dots so we can forge a stronger movement for justice that 
brings people together. I mean, think about this. There's so much crazy happening in our country right now. I mean, just in the last two weeks, you have the the whole, you know, abortion issue resurfacing with the, the pill issue. You have, you know, it seems like Matt, there's a mass shooting every week. You know, we have reports of a man literally dying after he's eaten up by insects in a jail in Atlanta. We have 42 activists in Atlanta charged with domestic terrorism. They're mostly peaceful protesters and a complete abuse of the law. We have poisonings in Ohio, Indiana. This is all, in my opinion, not just disparate, crazy events. I mean, this is all a function of a deeper problem in our country that relates to the utter buyout of government, the government's supposed to protect the public. It's been bought out by corporate power and it's manifesting now in huge problems all over the place. And of course it gets everyone so upset and confused. It's almost to the point where it's by design. So people feel paralyzed. So we cannot organize and we cannot bring the peace movement together with the climate movement and the labor movement and the criminal justice reform movement. So I think it's really important we keep our heads straight as we're, you know, really buffeted with all sorts of stuff going on right now. And, you know, the bigger picture, though, for me and for those who get attacked by corporations, I mean, Greenpeace has been sued under RICO um, for engaging in a, a campaign in Canada to protect an old growth forest. There are massive abuses of the law taking place. Our federal judiciary, um, a good part of it has gone so far to the right that these cases start to gain traction and they become you know, weapons of power by corporations to use the judicial system to, to undermine people's movements. And you know, I'm I'm kind of an extreme manifestation of that. And I'm lucky enough to have had enough solidarity, including from Code Pink. And by the way, there's a a a person who I think once worked for Code Pink, Ali McCracken, who now works for Amnesty International, who literally saved my ass like you cannot believe. She fought behind the scenes for my rights and and got me out of prison after six weeks when I was supposed to be there for six months. So all of what each of you do, Teddy, hearing you, it's inspirational. And and, and um, Yanni, I, you guys are such an inspiration out there in Hawaii, man. I, I salute you so much and feel total solidarity with your struggle. Um, but all of these little things all of us are doing need to connect up and they really, really matter. Um, and the connections really matter. So I'll, I'll stop there. I hope that's at least marginally relevant to what you wanted to hear me say tonight. And I'm happy to answer any questions later on. First well, question. Well, first of all, just super gratitude because everyone has shared some very hard stories for all of us witnessing to hold for you. So just the deepest gratitude and thank you for sharing about what this work is like up close and personal. And um, I posted in the chat, we have a campaign at Code Pink. Um, so I put in the chat how you can call on your members of Congress to take on the issue of what's happening in Guam. But Julian, what else, um, if, if there's anything else that those here who have been affected by your story can do besides read your book, um, which I also encourage everyone to do because in the, in, it nourishes your heart as you deal with the grief uh, simultaneously. So um, Julian, anything else? 
Thank you so much, Jody. But also just ratcheting up the organizing. I mean, well, like we really have to target this armed services committee, you know, the armed forces committee. This is there's so much work that is like sort of missed opportunities, you know, and that is like organizing the hell of our out of ourselves to really stop because this, let's call it what it is, you know, it's the military industrial congressional complex. Congress is a bedfellow in this whole sordid mess. And we know that because they are literally approved and then add money to the Pentagon's requested budget. It is a shit show. I mean, what's what, what's happened, you know, how, how clearly and rapidly they're acceler accelerating the militarization of my homeland, you know, we and also just to call all of these leaders on the carpet when they sort of reflexively use the language of going to war with China. None of that is inevitable. And we, we, but we see its use. It's so loose and so casual, you know, like I cringe when I hear it because so many people are already sort of sliding into the war going rhetoric without sort of like just taking a pause. You know, there's so much like work. We can get that petition signed. We can like work on certain committee members. I mean, there's, there's just really a wide range of things we could do. Uh, another thing I would ask I don't want to take up too much time, but if Guam can be explicitly added to the sort of the list of demands that Copink is already bringing so that we're, we're not duplicating our efforts. Guam is just absent from some of the work you're already doing. So I think that that's another thing. Thank you. Medea, you had a great question. Yes, I was talking in the chat to Keone and it really also applies to Julian. Um, this issue, Keone, of your being able to work uh, in alliance with some of the members of the military who live on the base and whose water has been contaminated. I wonder if you could tell us uh, how that alliance is working with all the differences there must be in culture, in, you know, the, the Native Hawaiians thinking of the military as invaders of their land. And potentially to, to Julian, is there any uh, potential of working uh, are there any allies that you can find in the military for the issue of the militarization of Guam? Thank you. Yeah, mahalo for the question. Um, I, it, first and foremost, it's important to establish that, that Riddle has been leaking for decades. Um, the site was declassified in 1999, um, so we didn't even know it existed, yet it continued to spill from the 1940s on. Um, there was a massive spill in 2014 that was even larger than 2019. So I think we have the advantage of social media and we're um, you know, spreading faster than ever before um, to our advantage. And, and this is one of those rare instances in which our movement, you know, um, as Kiatuvai as water protectors, this fight is directly linked to sovereignty. This is directly linked to self-governance, self determination and an AI independence. Um, you know, as we are removed from our land, um, thus our land is poisoned. Um, and, and so this has been one of these very unique moments in history in which um, military, active military members and their families are on the same side as us. Um, and places like Fort Island have been poisoned again for decades and people that have been stationed there have been sick for a very long time and haven't had the, you know, um, maybe the confidence to come forward and speak. Um, I, I do want to, to shout out um, Major Mandy Fedit, who has um, courageously, while in uniform, um, not just spoken out about this, uh, but actually directly sued the Navy al along with a number of others. Um, and so she's done that, putting her, her career at risk. And, and through struggle, we have created incredible solidarity. We've been, have, we've been able to have these conversations about this might be new 
to, to your community, but this is what we've been experiencing for 130 years of illegal occupation. And so if we can create um, this, uh, you know, uh, this, this is a working class, class solidarity movement, you know, um, putting the Hawaiians back onto land will, will directly reduce the cost of living for everyone in Hawaii. If you just look at agriculture. Um, and, and so being able to have these talking points spread outside of our community um, is, is one of those, you know, small wins we have, um, because now people can understand why things like Mauna Kea are so important. Um, you know, that wasn't a movement that, that was able to galvanize as, as much support, especially within our own communities here in Hawaii as Red Hill has. Uh, yet there was a spill on Mauna Kea weeks ago in July at a UH facility, a, a telescope spilled jet, you know, uh, gasoline in, into our aquifer. And so this is why things like Mauna Kea are so important. And so Red Hill becomes one of these moments in which we're able to create that, that solidarity between Kanaka Maoli, um, Kama'aina, the people of Hawaii, um, and then spread into the military itself so they can understand what our community has been facing for decades. We hope to, to build this movement greater together for them. And my heart goes out to those communities. And it is important to acknowledge that, you know, um, our Kanaka community is, is integrated into the military. My grandfather served, my uncle has served, and many of, of our members uh, that are Kanaka Mali have uniforms on um, and, and no small part because of a lack of economic opportunity. And, and so that is also the other side of the coin here is us building economic power in solidarity. And, and so supporting not just made in Hawaii brands, but native Hawaiian owned companies is one of the best ways in which we can build economic power that can help us build political power to one day regain as much of our land, if not all of it as possible. Thank you. Teddy, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? Um, I, I didn't have a question lined up, Jody. I thought we were moving uh, into uh, the se se session on Earth Day, um, but we, if we're yeah. still in the Q&A session, then let's continue with I've, that. Um, just checking, I've asked Mary and Ruth to see if they could put in the chat what their questions are. Um, and Taj? Uh, I have a question. Um, this question is for both Keone and Julian, and that is, uh, where are the people on this, uh, the people of Hawaii, the people of Guam? Is there a growing sentiment against all of this horrific militarization, or how do we shift the public opinion? You want to go first, Julian? Oh, sure. Okay. Yes, absolutely. There's a growing um, movement. I mean, to answer Medea's question from the chat, a growing movement for independence, as well as a growing sort of anti-war movement here. Um, we have, um, in the last decade, I've seen such a dramatic expansion of, of sort of our activist movement. And we have like organizations whose sole purpose is, is opposing this current U.S. military buildup. I'll just make a quick shout out to sort of the, the amazing grassroots indigenous Chamorro women who lead Protehi Latexan, say Virginian. This, this is a group that, that we work with very closely. We have protested at every single angle. And we, and we've sort of, the, the thing that I'm proud about is that we've really done it in a diversified way. We've done, we've thrown everything you know, that we could add it. We, all, the legal, non-legal, political community, grassroots. I mean, even in, 
we're invoking, for example, like even getting different members of the community that otherwise weren't really historically associated with activism. For example, the fisher folk. We have galvanized so many of our traditional fishermen. Uh, I'll just give you an example with the machine gun range that I talked about. It's created a weird surface danger zone whereby the U.S. military is blocking access to all of our fishermen for no less than 242 days out of a 365-day year. You know, like no concern for the lunar calendar, no concern for how different species of fish, you know, or anything, any traditional knowledge. So we have really galvanized certain communities that haven't been before. And so that really is expanding. We are trying our absolute best we are. We There are so many members in the community who are opposed to both this U.S. military project and U.S. militarization in general. Go ahead, Keone. Thank you. Yeah, and then our, our movements are inherently linked globally and especially across the Pacific. Um, you know, in terms of support for defueling Red Hill, I, I would say we have more support for this movement than any that I've seen in, in my lifetime. I, I think um, when you talk about eight elementary schools, <laughs> that have had their water source poisoned in which the children there are told they cannot even wash their hands because there's there's jet fuel coming out of the faucet. This is one of those moments in which it does galvanize um, an incredible amount of support both for civilians and, and, and members of the military because it is the military that is has been affected the most here in terms of the water coming out of their pipes. Um, and, and so while we do have this support throughout Hawaii and, and Oahu in, in particular, um, Still, the Navy has refused to to move a drop of oil um, at, at, at a, out of the fuel uh, facility itself. Um, you know that is why a delegation went to uh, Washington D.C. It was within that short amount of time, making a lot of noise. That you know, within that week, the the task force was created that was given the Kuliana the responsibility to begin that defueling process, and we began to see a timeline that expands more than two years as repairs need to occur. Um, before fuel can begin to leave that facility. So we're still in a multi-year battle here to fuel to leave the facility. Um, and so we are trying to use this moment to shine a light on as many of these facilities that are leaking across Paena, Hawaii as possible. So we do have the support in particular for this moment. Um, we are beginning to face PR pressure, um, you know, call to arms um, for, you know, militarization, um, you know, which which is crazy to me to use occupied Hawaii and Guam to, you know, supposedly support sovereignty for for Taiwan from China um and so we're hoping within this moment that 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 our our struggles can can rise as much as possible um and so even with so much support we haven't seen actual progress in, in terms of getting that facility defueled um the other piece of that is we are beginning to hear rumors uh, or statements in the public that they'd like to repurpose that facility. So for us, defueling is only stage one, decommissioning is stage two, and to me, deoccupation is stage three. The, the, the military needs to leave that site. That site is sacred to us. Thank you, Keone and Julian. You've been listening to our Code Pink Congress Earth Day special. I want to thank our featured guests, Keone DeFranco, Hawaiian water protector, Stephen Donziger, champion environmentalist battling Chevron, and Juan Aguan, founder of Ocean Blue Law, challenging U.S. colonization and militarization of Guam. I'm Marcy Winograd. Thank you for joining us on Code Pink Radio. Peace. Since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil.